You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Rebecca Christiansen. Rebecca is the author of two young adult fiction novels, um, Maybe in Paris and We Make Mayhem. And she is also a writer on labor and politics uh, on Medium and at the Post Millennial. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. It's my pleasure. So I have literally just this instant finished reading We Make Mayhem. And it's it really brought home to me how undervalued the art of just pure storytelling is, how undervalued by people who are literary critics and academics. Because, you know, it's a young it's a young adult novel. So it's not it's not this kind of dense literary um grand oeuvre. And it, it's much lighter, looser. It's more of a kind of page turner that grabs your attention. But I think that at least when I was, when I was studying literature, there was a lot of kind of scorn for things that were just a good story. And yet I actually think creating a, a good story is one of the most difficult skills as a writer. And this was just a fantastically it was just a lovely story. It was the pacing, the plot. Um, it was really, in, it was really enthrallingly written. And I was just, I was also just so heartened. Um, you published it on Wattpad, and yeah. I was so heartened to see the readers' comments um, because uh, we readers can comment directly on the text there in Wattpad, and all your young readers were just were clearly completely gripped by the story and by the characters. It was just a joy to see. That must have been so exciting for you. Oh my gosh, yeah. That has been um, by far the best part of experimenting on Wattpad. So my first novel was published traditionally by a publishing house in New York. Um, And then I decided to kind of go off on my own and try this experiment with Wattpad. Uh, Wattpad is a Canadian company. They've been around for probably about 10 years. And it's it's a self-publishing platform, but it's kind of mixed in with social media. And um, it's, just, it's just this like absolutely wild experience to be able to communicate with readers that closely. Yeah, as you said, they can comment on the text, like on each line of the text. And often readers will comment like real-time reactions as they're reading like every line they'll pause and and write a little comment or a reaction or an emoji and it's it's absolutely wild it's intense yeah you get a real sense of um it gave me the 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 readers reactions as we were going along gave me a real sense of how important the kind of twists and turns and pacing and things are in a yeah. novel um because you can see them reacting to it in real time it's just yeah, it's wild. Yeah. So tell me, um, first of all, tell us a little bit about about that novel. So mm. it's centered around 
I don't want to give any spo- give too many spoilers. <laughs> um, actually, I will just say now that if you are listening to this and you want to read the novel, just in case, I suggest that you stop listening to this podcast, go and read the novel, and just bookmark this podcast and come back after you've finished reading, okay? Because I can't guarantee no spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so just big a big flag here. If you are listening right now, and you don't want to hear any spoilers, switch this podcast off and go and read the novel. <laughs> and the link is down below in the show notes. We'll try for minimal spoilers, but there might be a couple. I think it's unavo- It's kind of unavoidable. Yeah. Um, but let's start with the app that was um, the sort of central idea um, in the novel, which is uh, this app called Tempter. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah, so Tempter is kind of a mix between uh, a dating site and like almost like a DNA kind of site. It's this mystical app in the world it's, of the novel. It's very mysterious. No one really knows Wait, how it what's works. A, what's a DNA app? Did oh, like say? a Twenty Three and Me kind of. Um, oh, yeah. Discovery mm-hmm. app about yourself. And yeah, in the novel, it's very mysterious. No one quite knows how it works, but it's causing all these waves because when you log into it, it tells you who your soulmate is. And no one really quite knows how this works, if it's pulling a random name or if it's, you know, data mining your phone and pulling up a contact. And um, so it's very controversial, but it's causing this massive wave of divorces because people are getting these names of people that they really have had feelings for their whole life and they're just dropping everything and making these drastic decisions. So in the world of the novel, Riley, the protagonist and his girlfriend, Chloe have kind of taken up this campaign of activism against Tempter because they just feel very strongly that it's causing all these societal problems. And the novel starts when Riley finds out that his dad has used the app and that his parents are getting divorced. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's it it reminded me a little bit of the a, a tiny bit of um do you remember this article in the New York Times about the I think it's the 26 questions to find love? Yes, yeah, I remember that. Um, or the 36 questions, I don't know, but I'll put the proper thing in the link in the show notes. Where you're supposed to ask these questions to each other and then you answer them and then you look into each other's eyes for a set amount of time and it's supposed to um, help you to be an instant method of falling in love. Yeah, yeah. And I actually asked the boyfriend if he wanted to try this with me and he was like, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, these things should happen more organically. I don't like the idea of being kind of forced to, forced to fall in love by, a, by an article. Yeah, and that's a reaction that people have in the novel to Tempter. Society's kind of split along the lines of people who think it's really cool and the people who think it's unnatural and can only lead to bad outcomes. And they're suspicious of the app's creator, Decker Lord, who's kind of this billionaire inventor, very strange kind of Elon Musk character. And so Riley, Riley finds himself on the opposite side of the opposite side of this from Chloe throughout the novel and kind of changes his perspective. Mm. I think it's a really, it's a really timely and lovely re- reflection on 
the way in which apps are changing the dating market. Mm. Was that kind of the, your point of departure when you were writing or what, what was the initial um, sort of issue or idea or spark? Yeah. Orig- my, my very first spark of in- inspiration was actually Elon Musk's first appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast mm. because it was really interesting to me how like the whole world kind of stopped and focused on this conversation between this eccentric character and somebody who whose kind of purpose in the media landscape is to bring forth strange and different ideas. And in the novel, Riley is a podcast producer at his school. He's the head of the AV club. So it it really intrigued me, the idea of somebody who kind of sees themselves as like a midwife for ideas. And then this strange billionaire character who's very eccentric. Uh, and then as I was writing, I wrote the novel specifically for Wattpad because my agent and I have had trouble selling another novel. So I wanted to kind of take my career into my own hands in a way. And I wanted to do something with the idea of soulmates because that's a very attractive idea to young readers. Mm. So I was motivated by the idea of like technology meshing with our actual lives. And I thought soulmates was a cool way to do that. Oh, absolutely. It was a a fantastic idea. And I love the way the novel incorporates it. I I don't want to give many spoilers, but kind of shifts genres as you're going along. Yes. Um, So it begins with this feeling of social critique, and then it becomes very James Bond-esque. Yeah. Yeah. It was 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 really fun to write in that way. I got to play around with a lot of different genres. And then it shifts into another genre, which I won't say because it will be really too much of a spoiler. Um, but it does kind of slide, slide very effortlessly between genres. And each time you did that, I went to look at the comments at the bottom yeah. um, in the Wattpad. And ev- every time you did that, it got a kind of ecstatic response from the young readers. It was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen read oh wow this novel is amazing um and all this stuff which just kind of I mean I'm not even the author my I it warmed my heart to read it so I don't know how how you were able to even like deal with it emotionally it's like too much yeah it's really really intense and it's funny coming from more of a traditional publishing background like my whole career has been geared toward you know that big publishing contract but you you don't get the same reader interaction as you do on Wattpad. And that's been like really amazing. Um, it's really motivating because Wattpad is actually kind of designed to be used as a platform where you're kind of writing as you publish. So, you know, the idea is that you would write a chapter and then post it and then write a chapter and post it. Uh, I may do that for my next Wattpad novel, but for this one, I wrote it all in one go and then posted it. Um, I posted three chapters a week until it was finished. And uh, I'm excited to kind of try the Wattpad method for writing on the fly because that would be really, really fun. I feel like you could gear your chapters to the response that way. Mm. It, re- it re- I mean, it's a classic way of publishing novels. Mm. It's the way that all uh, many of those big, um, meaty, three-decker Victorian novels were published in installments. Um, like yeah, Dickens's right. novels and George Eliot's novels. Um, and 
when um, Samuel Richardson was publishing his novels in the 18th century, um, mm-hmm. he he had a group of people who would meet at his house to read over the installments so far and um, give him kind of advice and ideas and discuss where they wanted the novel to go next. That's really neat. I think he always ignored their ideas and advice. Of course, they didn't fit what he wanted to do anyway. Um, yeah. And sometimes he warned them, you are not going to like this, <laughs> but here it comes. <laughs> and there, so there, this, is, this is not a new idea, but it's just yeah. um, the digital medium makes it more widely accessible. Yeah. Yeah, I really love it. It started out as just a fun experiment, but now I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of it in the future. Um, how long have you been writing fiction? Uh, I wrote my first story when I was six years old, basically as soon as I could write. And then I kept going with it. I wrote my first completed novel when I was 13. Um, and then I've just been doing it ever since. I'm going to be 30 this year. So 17 years of writing novels or so. Wow. Was there was there kind of a development from your first to your second um, published novel? Yeah. Were there things that you, you didn't do in the first novel that you were kind of hoping that you'd be able to do in this second one? Or was there a connection? Is there, are there kind of themes that um, constantly run through your work? There are, but it's funny because the ones that I've published don't really show them. So there's a lot of um, deeper themes that work in a lot of what I haven't published. So it'd be interesting when one of those um, is released and I can see people's reaction to it. but. My first novel was much more autobiographical. Uh, Maybe in Paris is about a girl who takes her autistic brother on a trip to Paris and uh, the hijinks that ensue from that. But We Make Mayhem was a lot more just kind of random fun for me. It wasn't so much tied to my own experience. So it was nice to not have that kind of fraught emotional aspect on the writing side. Mm, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of a roll. It's one of those rollicking, romping, traditional rompy kind of novels. Um, that's yeah. why I kept being reminded of of um, of James Bond. Um, yeah, because of I the, love that comparison. There's a lot of secrecy and espionage and um, really really fun technology. I think the thing, the influences that I was, the things that I was thinking about as I was reading were. Uh, apart from James Bond, were also, um, I don't know if you have seen the miniseries Salvation, um, it's called. So the main character in that is also an Elon Musk-like eccentric billionaire. Mm. Um, There are various other plot similarities, which I don't don't want to go into too closely. Um, And I think the and the third thing was also Ian um, Ian Banks's novel, The Business, um, which also has that same feeling. So that is an adult novel, and so it's it's framed a bit differently. Um, your Ooh. novel has a kind of lighter touch. It's there's less dense. There are fewer kind of dense passages of description. It's really aimed very much at younger readers and the Banks novel is aimed at older readers, but it has that same kind of just really enjoyable wish fulfillment. Like, wouldn't it be fun if, if the world was like X and Y and we could, we could sort of see that it's, it's a, 
it really, it you know, it appeals to some very deep fantasies, at least of yeah. mine. I don't know about anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, I always like when science fiction has kind of a playful element. Mm. It, the mm. doom and gloom is can be fun on on its own, but I liked I like a lighter, more optimistic view of technology and what it's bringing us. And there's definitely some darker aspects in We Make Mayhem, but I think it's it's more of a it's more of a fun look at these things. I'd like to read a passage, actually. Sure. Um, it was a bright morning in August when my parents told me they would be the fifth couple on our street to get a divorce that year. The kitchen was full of late summer sunshine. Dad had done all the cooking, as he always did on weekend mornings, pancakes, bacon, eggs, and Vegemite for the toast, which only Dad would eat in tribute to his homeland. Usually Mom and I would make jokes about Australians as soon as Dad put the jar on the table, but this time he set it down in front of Mom and she just stared it down. Who died? I joked, but she still didn't crack a smile. No one died, she said. Sit down, Riley. We have something to tell you. I sat down. Dad piled a couple pancakes onto her plate, but she acted like he didn't exist. Before I say anything, Mom said, I want you to remember that we love you very much. My syrupy mouthful turned to mush as I chewed. As soon as I realised what she was saying, I was gripped by the urge to vomit all over the table. You're getting a divorce, I said. Fuck. You're actually getting a divorce. Holy shit. Today of all days. The day I was leaving for San Francisco with my girlfriend Chloe to lead a march in defence of real love against the creator of the app that was destroying it. I couldn't get over the irony. Then I put two and two together. Which one of you downloaded Tempter? I asked. Riley, sit down, Dad said. I was on my feet, pacing the length of the kitchen before I even realised it. Which one of you downloaded that fucking app? I demanded. Neither of us looked at Tempter, Dad said. I don't believe you. The divorce rate has jumped to 78% in the eight months since that goddamn app went live. You know the stories. You've listened to our fucking podcast. How could you do it? How could you be so stupid? There was weakness in his eyes. I sat back down. The bacon, which smelled so delicious two minutes ago, now made my stomach turn. I couldn't look at Dad. I couldn't look at Mom either, now that I knew it wasn't blankness in her eyes. It was the shock of betrayal. Let's not talk about Tempter, Dad said. That's not important. What's important is that we're still going to support you through senior year. We're still going to... I don't care, I said. I can't believe this. After all Chloe and I have been saying, you still downloaded that app? Even knowing the effect it's having on marriages and relationships, you still thought it would be a good idea to let Decker Lord steal your data while giving you the name of your quote-unquote soulmate, as if that's not total bullshit. I got up from the table, my chair squealing against the old wood floor. I ignored Dad's calling my name as I pulled on my Converse high tops and stormed out to my car. It was unfair how beautiful the worst morning of my life was. The sun soaked everything, streaming down through the trees of Mother's Place, and it was only getting started. Our cul-de-sac at the bottom of the wealthiest neighbourhood in Canada, 
full of little old houses whose little old inhabitants bought them long enough ago that they can actually afford to live here. As I drove away, I peered through the foliage at each house whose owners were divorcing because one of them downloaded Tempter, an app that purported to tell users the name of their quote-unquote soulmate. Surprise, surprise, none of those soulmates turned out to be their spouse. The Wilsons hadn't yet figured out the details of their separation, but Mr Jenkins, Mrs Miller and Mrs Chen were now living alone in the houses they used to share with their spouses. Those houses looked lonely and sad, and so many old fixtures were gone. Mrs Jenkins' purple jeep was missing from their driveway. Mr Chen's garden had grown over with weeds. Mr Miller wasn't around to fix the broken drain pipe that splashed rainwater all over the side of what used to be his house, and now the siding was dingy and dirty. And now, since Mom had inherited the house from her parents, Dad would be missing too. I sped to Chloe's house far too early. Chloe was still in an 8.30 interview with a podcaster based in London, and we weren't leaving for San Fran until three o'clock. But I couldn't stay in my own house knowing what I knew now. I waved through the front window at her parents, who were enjoying their morning coffee like morally upstanding people. They were sitting at the table, chatting, sipping coffee, laughing, like my parents would probably never do again. I let myself into Chloe's room through her sliding glass door to the backyard. She sat at her desk, headphones on. She gave me a quick smile. Hmm, Chloe said into her microphone. I agree. We just don't know enough about Decker Lord to trust him. There's no transparency with any of his companies. Not Tempter, not Edison Motor Company, nothing. That's my fundamental issue with him. He hasn't proved himself to be very trustworthy. On her screen, the interviewer was talking with his hands. Chloe watched him sympathetically, nodding every few seconds. A line formed between her eyebrows. I loved watching her in interview mode, but hearing her talk about Decker Lord was almost too much. This fucking guy was taking over my life. Well, thank you for having me on, John, Chloe finally said. I really appreciate it. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. She pulled her massive headphones off her head, unplugged her microphone and closed her laptop. Oh, finally. Sorry to keep you waiting. It's fine. I know I'm early. I pulled her down onto the love seat. How'd the interview go? Good. Aside from the fact that the guy's been researching Decker Lord for three years and still knows almost nothing about him, she groaned. Sometimes I don't even think Lord is a real person. He isn't. He's a demon. Chloe laughed. Sounds like something I would say. That could have been the perfect entry point. I didn't usually join in the name-calling of Decker Lord, so it would be the perfect time to tell her, hey, yeah, so my dumbass father did this dumbass thing and looked at the fucking app like a total dumbass, and now my mom is divorcing him. I didn't want to think about Tempter any more than I had to. I was sick of it. But we were leaving on a whirlwind trip to San Francisco to protest Tempter that night. If I was tired of Tempter now... But hey, Chloe said, tomorrow he's going down, right? I forced a smile, but soon it became real. She was right. I was going to get my revenge. As soon as we landed, we were going to record a show with legendary podcaster James Roth, my hero. Tomorrow we were leading a protest march to Tempter's headquarters. 
we were taking real action. Tomorrow, Decker Lord would meet his match. It's just, it's just a lovely, it's just kind of an object lesson in how to write a good opening chapter. Thank you. Hearing it back, I, I like it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I think it's fun to hear one's work read by somebody else. So yeah. I was happy to do that for you. And so I'm looking at it in the Wattpad, um, and there are comments in the margin, and they start right from the very first sentence. Mm-hmm. So uh, this kind of, be- this just be- beautifully, classically oxymoronic sentence, you know, it was a bright morning in August when my parents told me they would, they would be divorcing. Um, and there are already nine comments, and you can click on in the margin, that's after one sentence. Whoops. Oh yeah, it's actually other people who have a couple of people are already saying that they are very excited. Um, so one person says, I'm excited as fuck. And you've only written one sentence. <laughs> it's kind of amazing <laughs> to me. And it says, this first sentence in the description, along with the fact that it's BXB. So it's a, it's a gay romance. Um, yes. At the heart of it is a, a romance between two boys, two young men. I feel like I'm about to go on a high fun ride. I have high hopes for this book. Um, this story sounds incredible and I will be sharing it if it lives up to the hype. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just sort of extraordinary that the, the speed with which they were pulled into this. Yeah. Um, it's almost like it's, it's, it's what readers think when they are having a good reading experience. So it's amazing that you get to actually see it. You know, when you read mm. a, for a great first sentence, you have that thought of like, oh yeah, I'm so excited. This is going to be great. But to actually get to see somebody write out their thoughts as they're reading, it's really awesome. Mm. And I gather on Wattpad, um, authors can respond to the comments. Yeah. Um, it's kind of expected. Um, in some ways, I I find that I, I'll reply to the ones where they're directly complimenting me. Um, in the epilogue, there's a lot of comments of people who've just finished it, and I'll always reply to those ones. But I I like to take a hands off approach in the actual story, um, mm-hmm. just because it's it's there it's it's for them. It's not really for me at that point. Mm, but uh, yeah. sometimes it's hard not to answer. It's absolutely a conversation between them and. Many of the comments that I read were kind of relevant to their lives. They were saying things like, yeah. when I have a boyfriend one day, I hope I have a boyfriend like this and stuff like that. So yeah. cute. Really cute. Um, or like one passage that they often comment on is where Riley's art teacher is kind of giving a little speech. And there's people commenting about how they wish they had her for a teacher or about how it, they, how she reminds them of their favorite teacher or telling little stories. It's like, it's so sweet. Yeah, it's got this kind of, I mean, that first chapter sets it in this sort of um, dystopian near, very near future. Yeah. Um, so it's that sort of black mirror genre. Um, yeah. And it's very vivid, this kind of portrayal of the neighborhood, which is in, in that kind of black mirror-esque sort of feel. It's the neighborhood that we're a na- kind of neighborhood that we're all familiar with, a sort of suburban neighborhood, mm. in this case in Vancouver. But um, I, of course, was imagining it being London suburbs. Yeah. And um, and yet it's just slightly different behind the scenes because almost everybody has got divorced. 
Um, that's yeah. just uh, that kind of very slight shifting. Um, it's our, it's our world shifted just a little bit and it's today, but just a little bit into the future. Um, yeah. Into a possible future. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with that aspect and with the setting. Um, I don't usually write very close to home. Like I write a lot of things set in the UK, strangely enough, but um, I set this in West Vancouver, which is the most affluent neighborhood in the the Vancouver area. And it's a place that I grew up near, but was always very much excluded from. So it was fun to kind of write that real life aspect of it. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. I wanted to just um, move on a little bit to young adult fiction more generally. Yeah. And I don't know how how typical what I see happening reflected on um, tw- storms on Twitter um, about yeah. young adult fiction is, but there seem to have been recently that I've I've noticed a lot of I would call them panics. Um, I mean, really moral panics about people's fiction, um, yeah. about their fiction being um, racist or. Um, being culturally appropriative or about them not having the right identity to write the particular novel they're writing. Yeah. And um, sometimes the 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 people making those arguments seem incredibly unsophisticated in their in their understanding of how fiction works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you, yeah. So I know you've said that you hate that. <laughs> you hate that yes, stuff. Um, I really do tell, hate it. Um, tell me more. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's the classic case of kind of overcorrection, because it's very true that for a really long time, traditional publishing, like the New York-based publishing world, has been very exclusionary. And in the early days of young adult fiction, their idea of diversity was getting stories about different types of people but the author base still remained very like straight and white and mm. mostly female. And mm. I, I really understand the frustration that that causes when people are allowed to write stories about other groups, but the stories aren't from those other groups. So that happened for a really long time. And then there was kind of this harsh overcorrection in the past couple of years that it it really went pretty crazy. And some of the individual cases are very, um, once you dig into them, you do realize that there's some element of almost neo-Puritanism. Like there's this belief that what's in a book has an outsized influence on the reader. Like mm-hmm. I, one specific book I can remember is a book called The Black Witch by Laurie Forrest. And the premise of the book is that it's this kind of deeply bigoted magical world where different magical factions like elves and witches and goblins and stuff are very are at each other's throats all the time in wars and just have horrible, horrible bigoted views of each other. But there was this one review that went viral. It was about a 10,000 word review and picking apart how racist this book was. But all of the instances of racism were the characters that were portrayed as being wrong 
So mm. the views of these characters weren't being endorsed, but just them being voiced at all was seen as racist. And it was, it that was a really crazy example, but you do see these little panics over specific books. And I do think it's calming down a little bit because one aspect of young adult fiction that's gone kind of crazy online is it's this descriptor called hashtag own voices. And mm-hmm. what that was meant to mean was it was meant to be a label of books that are written about a character that is similar to the author. So for example, a book with an autistic main character where the author is also autistic. So it has that element of authenticity that was referred to as own voices. And it was just meant Mm. to be kind of something to guide readers toward a book that had that authentic perspective. And that idea got inflated and over-weaponized to mean that any author can't write about anything outside their own experience. And I think more of the community is kind of seeing the error of those ways because there have been a couple of high profile instances where authors have been criticized for writing LGBT characters while they are seemingly straight. Um, For example, Becky Albertalli, who is the author of a book called Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which was made into a movie called Love, Simon. Uh, She's married to a man, has a child, seems by all appearances to be straight. And readers were criticizing her for this for a long time. And she ended up writing this blog post about how she's been bisexual her whole life, but has always been scared to reveal it and never wanted to publicly reveal it. Um, But she felt pressured to. And Mm -hmm. that has kind of spurred some introspection in the community and a different kind of view of author privacy. Because it is true that there are people who can't come out for whatever reason. And it's not a reader's place to demand that of an author. So there is more realization coming out of that. Hmm. I mean, it it seems to be a very, there's a very basic misunderstanding also of what it means to write and what it means to read. Because um, what it means to write is to imagine yourself, um, to to imagine um, the world through, through the eyes of other characters. Through yeah. the eyes of someone who is not you, and it also—that's also what it means to read. It's an exercise in 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 empathy and in getting inside the mind of somebody who is not you, and it seems to me very, very kind of um, very very much as as sort of secondary concern whether that person is the same race as you or I I, I guess autism is more of a special case, um, yeah. but. Certainly, whether or not that person, whether that person is straight or gay, for example, doesn't seem to me to be awfully relevant. I mean, I found it very easy to empathize with your main character, um, Riley, who um, is um, who is a gay man. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there really isn't a kind of a, there. There's much less of a difficulty in putting yourself into the mind of someone else then i think people people who ha- are who are having this kind of moral panic really realize mm-hmm. it's something we do when we when we read fiction it's such a large leap of faith but such an intuitive and sort of easy leap of faith with a good writer mm-hmm. that 
you begin that you find yourself thinking, feeling, empathizing as the characters do, or understanding them, or being immersed in their world. And if you can take that leap of faith from kind of reality into fiction, then the leap of faith from being, I don't know, a kind of Anglo-Canadian to being a black lesbian uh, woman in Chicago or something, that's mm. quite a small, that seems to me like a very small leap of faith by comparison. Yeah, and when it's a good author, it makes it a lot easier. But I do understand mm. the concern about certain voices being shut out of publishing. And, mm-hmm. you know, the it's kind of a famous slogan. I can't. I don't know where it originated from, but it's nothing about us without us that was often used by the gay community and the Black community in the U.S. And I do think that has a really good point in publishing because publishing in English language publishing is, is based in New York. And this one geographical area has such an outsized influence on English language publishing the whole world over. And mm-hmm. so the people who work in that industry are, it's been a slow moving industry to kind of work, expand into remote, remote work. So when you apply for a job in publishing, they do require you to live in New York. So, oh, wow. and, and they pay almost nothing. <laughs> so like, mm-hmm. you know, it, mm-hmm. not very many people can afford to make that leap to work in publishing. So as a result, right. it's very, it's very white and affluent. And same with like literary agents. Literary agents make a 15% cut, but they're only paid on commission. So the first few years of an agent's career, it basically shuts out anybody who isn't independently wealthy or married to someone who can support them. And Mm -hmm. that's a problem that kind of radiates out into the work of the industry. Because if, if everybody working for a publisher is, if it's 90% white and it's people who who are working this low paying job because they can afford to, because, you know, there's family money that definitely causes a problem. So it, it's a very like systemic issue, but it's getting better. And young adult is kind of, um, it's going through kind of a, a slower period right now because there hasn't really been like a huge hit since like the hunger games really like, and the whole industry was financed by these huge hits for so long. So it's interesting to see how it how the industry changes. And I think the moral panics come from that uh, maturing market kind of trying to find its feet. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, what have been the most influential um, young adult fictions, most influential for your writing and for you personally? Yeah, uh, it's got to be David Levithan is one of them. Um, he wrote this book called Boy Meets Boy that came out in 2005. And that was just an absolute groundbreaking YA novel because it was kind of one of the first YA novels where gay people were allowed to kind of play central roles in their own stories. Because before then, the industry was a lot more conservative. So the YA books with gay characters would kind of be like the brother or the sister of the main character. And so when gay characters kind of became protagonists, um, it was like a huge shift to the industry. And David Levithan was like at the forefront of that. Um, and he's written many, many books. He's a great author. But aside from that, 
Marcus Zusak has been really influential for me. He wrote The Book Thief. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, that's an absolutely amazing book. That's one of the very few YA books that has crossed over to the adult market really well. Um, mm. And he has an mm. earlier book that called I Am the Messenger that is just like one of my all-time, all-time favorites. So, yeah, those are two good ones. <laughs> what do you look for in a, in a young adult fiction? And how does it differ from adult fiction? Yeah. What I look for in a good read is doesn't differ so much between adult and YA. I love a good concept. Um, mm. When you have that hooky mm. concept, like it's referred to as high concept, I love that. Um, and when the writing can back it up, that's even better. I do tend to prefer a good story over good writing, but obviously, like when the two can can come in the same package, that's that's like the peak. Yeah, there are some differences, though. It's not that adult novels can go places that YA novels can't. YA novels can run the gamut as far as subject matter and content. But, um, yeah, they do have, YA novels do have, like, a greater level of responsibility, I think. So I look for kind of responsible, responsible storytelling. Mm. What do you mean and by that? doesn't mean... It doesn't mean, um, like, I'm all for swear words and sex in YA novels. Like, I, I'm not approved at all. But I think... I noticed. To... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you have to treat your subject matter with care. So that that's really, really important. And you have to recognize that young adult readers are going through, like, one of the most turbulent emotional periods in their lives. And because their lives have been short up to that point, everything feels like the end of the world. So I think it's important to put things in perspective for them and um, kind of create a large world for them to imagine themselves in. I think that's really important. Mm, mm, mm. I just wanted to ask you about your your choice of protagonist, um, why you chose to write in the voice of a young gay man. <laughs> it's funny. That's been my default um, character choice my almost my whole writing life since I was 13. Um, mm. I, I do sometimes write female main characters, like maybe in Paris is, has a female main character, but um, it just, it comes very easily to me. And I don't know why. Um, I think as a teenager, I don't know how much this has to do with it, but I was bullied a lot as a teenager by boys. And whenever girls kind of picked on by boys in school, it's always kind of passed off as, you know, like, oh, he likes you. Um, or when I tell people that I was bullied by boys, they think it was like sexual harassment, but it wasn't. It was very um, physical and very harsh and not related to, it wasn't like sexual harassment or sexual bullying at all. So I was very scared of teenage boys when I was that age. So maybe now I'm kind of, I kind of feel more secure and more safe in exploring that viewpoint it's hard to say how much that has to do with it but as a teen when I wrote teen boys it was very much from the point of view of wanting to find some humanity there because I wasn't seeing it in the real world mm, that's interesting what age was that when you were going through that bullying 13 14 ish yeah what an extraordinary choice to decide to try to humanize them from the inside from this kind yeah. of empathetic writerly position 
yeah, I needed to, to see, I needed to know that there was softness there, I think. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, would you, uh, would you also like to read a little passage um, from either novel? Sure. Hmm. Now to choose. Maybe read us a small oh. bit from maybe in Paris. Sure. I have it right here. So your your brother is autistic, I know, and you've um, yeah. you've written a letter exchange about that, which I'll link to in the show notes, which was yeah. one of my favorite exchanges on the platform of letter. Um, and um, um, yeah, tell us a bit more about that book and then maybe read us a little bit from it. Yeah. So maybe in Paris, it kind of came out of a tough period in my life when my brother was going through a lot of mental health struggles. And, um, at the time I was, I'm always a big travel bug. I love travel. And I was like dying to get away at this point. So I was feeling kind of conflicted between having these troubles at home and wanting to escape them. So I wrote a book where the main character brings her brother on her big trip. And, uh, she's very idealistic and she, you know, she wants to have the perfect time and, and she wants him to enjoy himself, but she's not really thinking about him. She's, she's, you know, putting herself first and, and uh, it comes at the detriment of her brother. <laughs> I read this once. Uh, I read this once when I did a reading at my hometown library and uh, it's funny. I think, I think uh, your audience might appreciate it. It's a little bit politically incorrect. Marvelous. We love it. <laughs> okay, so to set the scene, um, Kira is the main character. She's at Versailles with her brother Levi. Um, and being a very kind of starstruck, idealistic person, you know, she she went to Versailles expecting, you know, like all the glitter and glitz and glamour. And she ended up finding it kind of depressing. So she and Levi are on the bus back into Paris. The bus ride into the city center is fraught with existential crap. Versailles was impressive, of course, but empty. I essentially met my celebrity crush, and he was a complete asshole. I think about taking Marie Antoinette off the list in my head of girls I would save if I had a time machine. Sure, there are men I would go back and save, but infinitely more women. Women had all the tragedies and deserved almost none of them. Anne Boleyn, Joan of Arc. Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia Romanoff, Anne Frank. Marie Antoinette was always on that list. Her beheading seemed like the cruelest thing in the world. She was beautiful and innocent, and, I thought, a martyr, and the world cut her down with a sharp blade to the neck. Now I think Levi might be right. Sure, she stood for beauty and unadulterated fun, but she was ignorant, sheltered, and not even very intelligent. A selfish, silly little girl. But I'm selfish and silly a lot of the time. Does that mean I deserve a bloody execution? Does that mean I'm not worth saving? If you could go back in time and rescue someone, I say to Levi as we hurtle along the highway back to Paris, someone who suffered a fate they didn't deserve, who would you save? Levi's quiet for a long time. He stares out at the trees we pass with his lips pressed tightly together. Hitler, he says. A few <laughs> seconds pass before I recover enough to respond. Hitler. Adolf Hitler. No, Joe Hitler. Of course, Adolf. He was brilliant, good leader, good planner, aside from the war on two fronts thing and the Russian winter thing. And he was an artist. 
Jesus Christ, Levi, he killed millions of people. Not personally, Levi counters. Technicality. Way more people died at the hands of Stalin. So I'm guessing you'd save him too? No, he was evil. I roll my eyes, but seriously, what the fuck? Does my brother really sympathize with Hitler? Isn't that illegal? Maybe I should text mom. She's worried about him getting into weird shit. Nazi shit would definitely qualify. You just had to pick someone to save, he says. You didn't say save from their death. What if I chose to save someone from their life? Nothing comes out when I open my mouth. Levi keeps going. What if Hitler was accepted to art school in Vienna? What if he never joined the military or fell on hard times? What if he never had the chance to develop a hatred for Jews? What if he just quietly studied art and went on to sell paintings and just lived out the rest of his life harmlessly? Holy crap, I think you might be kind of right. I run the theory through my brain and somehow it all makes sense. What if we could neutralize the harm in people like Hitler? Maybe Hitler could have a spot. If I can come to terms with the fact that the name Adolf Hitler would appear on my list containing my favorite people from history. That's very wise of you, Levi, I tell him. He shrugs. It's just logic. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, just to wrap things up, um, do you have some advice for somebody who would, who, uh, the uh, someone who has always wanted to write a novel and just doesn't know where to start? Yeah, um, this is kind of a theory I've been relearning lately, um, just having some trouble lately with my own writing. It all comes back to character especially plot. Plot and character are not two separate things. So if you're struggling with the idea of starting a story and you don't know how the story will go, always bring it back to your character. Your character, if they're a full person, if they can walk off the page into real life, then that's easy. Then they can have a story happen around them. So it's backstory is often maligned. And seen as, you know, extraneous and that you shouldn't bring too much of it into a narrative. But you need to work your character's backstory in order to give them conflict to go forward into the story. So that's what I would say. I would say start with your character, flesh them out fully, and maybe you don't use all of that backstory. But somewhere in that backstory, there's a problem that they need to solve. And then use that to build your story from there. Thank you. Is there anything that you've wanted to say um, that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I don't think so. I think I've said my piece. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Rebecca. Good luck with the next novel. Thank you. And um, I will be um, watching with great interest. And I plan to read um, maybe in Paris now, too. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.